Section 12 of The Red Lamp by Murray Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. August 14th. Tomorrow Hayward says I shall be able to see Greeno, the first intimation I have had that he is back in the neighborhood. But I feel that my consciousness of my own innocence will be as nothing against Greeno's sheer determination to prove me guilty. And yet, guilty of what? Of a bullet buried in the floor of my own house? And a broken window? We have had no further crime. Nothing is altered, save my own feeling that a net is closing around me, and that some malignant fate is sitting spider-fashion in the center of it, waiting to pounce on me and destroy me. Yesterday, being allowed to read, I found that with the single exception of the red light, my experience is fairly true to type in such matters. Thousands of people have apparently gone through the same sort of thing, and have been neither the better nor the worse for it afterwards. They saw, they believed, and then dismissed it, to be dug up out of their memories later to assist somebody to write a book, or to entertain a dinner table. But in my case, what? My only hope, apparently, is to convince Greeno that I saw this thing, to show him the steps by which I was led to fire the shot, to put him, if I can, in my place for an hour or two. Suppose, like a lawyer preparing a brief, I make my statement here, and tomorrow read it to him? At least I can make this entry full and explicit. It passes the time, and he may be willing to listen. This is the 14th. It was, then, the early evening of the 11th when Annie Cochran stopped at the lodge on her way home and asked to see me at the kitchen door. I'm leaving, Mr. Porter, she said. I don't like to make trouble for you, but I can't stand that secretary. What has he done, Annie? Done, she said and sniffed. He's watching me, for one thing. I never go upstairs, but he's at my heels. But that's not all. He's going to make trouble for Mr. Bethel. You mark my words. And Mr. Bethel knows it. He's scared tonight. There had been a quarrel, she said, at dinner, carefully camouflaged while she was in the room, but breaking out again the moment she left it. So far as she could make out, it had to do with the secretary's leaving the house at night, and his insistence that he go out when and how he liked. But there was something beneath that, she thought. That wasn't enough for the fuss they were making, she said. There was murder in that boy's face, Mr. Porter. Mr. Bethel, she thought, was trying to quiet him, but he refused to be quieted. Finally, Gordon got up and flung open the pantry door, finding her inside it, and he said, according to her, Listening, are you? Well, you'd better watch out, or you'll get something you don't expect. Then he went out into the hall, got his hat, and slammed out of the house, leaving the paralytic sunk in his chair. He's gone? Where? He didn't say. He just took the car and went. She was uneasy. She had construed what he said as a threat against her, of a serious sort, and I drove her into Oakville myself. On the way I tried to persuade her to return to her employment for a time at least, on the grounds that we might need her, and she finally agreed. It was perhaps nine o'clock when I returned to find the rector and his wife calling, and to sit through an hour and a half of gently unctuous conversation, while my uneasiness constantly increased, and my sense of guilt and responsibility. If we had warned the old man, he would have been at least prepared to take care of himself in an emergency, but we had foolishly kept our knowledge to ourselves, and even allowing for exaggeration on Indy Cochran's part, there seemed no doubt that such an emergency might be at hand. At 10.30 our visitors took their departure, and leaving Jane prepared to retire, and Edith to answer some of her letters, I wandered with apparent aimlessness down to the boathouse. Halliday was not there, and as the dory was missing I knew he was somewhere out on the water. After waiting until 11 my restlessness was extreme, and I walked up and around the main house, to find the garage doors open and the car still out. Had there been any indication of life in the building, I think I would have wakened Mr. Bethel and warned him, stayed with him, perhaps, until that murderous young devil was safely settled for the night. But his room was dark and his windows closed, so I thought better of it. But I did ascertain that the gunroom windows were locked, and that if the boy effected an entrance at all, it would be by some less surreptitious method. Thus reassured, I went back to the boathouse, and soon after Halliday rode quietly in and tied the dory. He had rowed up, he said, to see if the boat was still there. 
It had not been disturbed so far as he could tell. I told him my story, but he was less anxious than I had expected. It's not the game, he said. If Gordon is the killer, we've got to consider that he doesn't kill out of anger. That's different. He's cool and deliberate. He plans his stuff ahead and goes through with it. I don't even think he gets any thrill out of crime itself. The real secret joy is in baffling discovery. And he knows this. After the quarrel tonight, if old Bethel fell down the stairs and broke his neck, he would be blamed for it. But he thrust his army automatic in his pocket nevertheless, and we started toward the house, with no particular plan in mind, but a fixed determination to protect Mr. Bethel, in case of any trouble, as Halliday put it. We had almost reached the end of the walk over the marsh when he halted suddenly and stared to the right. There was a light over there, he said. In the woods. Wait a minute, maybe it will show again. It did show, above the head of Robinson's Point apparently, in that lonely strip of woodland which leads to the hiding place of the boat. Note, in explanation of our conclusion that we had seen one of the lights of the car as Gordon drove down through the trees, I can only give again the difficulty of distinguishing at night a small light comparatively close at hand from a large one some distance away. Halliday watched it, and then passed his revolver to me, first taking off the safety catch. Don't fall over anything, he warned me, and don't shoot until you see the whites of his eyes. I'm going over there, Skipper. He set off on a steady lope, heading for the light, but obliged to make a long detour around the marsh. I myself, holding the revolver gingerly, started on to the house. I was feeling, comparatively speaking, relaxed. I felt as did Halliday that Gordon was near Robinson's point. My duty, as I saw it, was simply to stand guard until Halliday returned, and we could make some plan, in case of trouble later to get into the house, if possible. This thought, that we might want to get into the house, bothered me. My keys were at the lodge, and I could hardly hope to secure them without disturbing Jane. I made, as a result, another round of the windows, and was brought up short by the fact that one of the gunroom windows, certainly closed and locked before, now stood open. It was the more startling, because I had but that moment ascertained that the garage doors still stood wide, and that the car was still missing. I dare say every man has occasional doubts of his physical courage. I know that, after the sinking of the Titanic, I was obsessed with the fear that I might have fought like a demon to get into a lifeboat. But I dare say, too, that every man has a sort of spare reservoir of courage, on which he can draw in the emergency, when it comes. Yet I shall not pretend, even to myself, that I pulled up my shoulders, examined my weapon, and then boldly entered that window. I crawled in, with knees that shook under me, and a definite nausea in the pit of my stomach. And to make matters worse, there was a slow footstep somewhere near, which I was a second or so in identifying as a drip from the old shower next door. I had no doubt whatever that Gordon had returned, and the very fact that he had come without the car made that return sinister. I groped for the door into the passage, and stood there listening, but there was no sound whatever, save the leak of the tap. I remember that as I passed the door of the shower room I looked in, and a gleaming eye nearly lost me my equilibrium, until I remembered Edith's piece of phosphorescent wood. All this, it must be noted, was in complete darkness. I reached the dining room without incident, and there a new thought struck me. Annie Cochran had represented the old gentleman as distinctly alarmed, and I myself had seen him some time before, more or less on guard, with a revolver. Suppose he saw a strange figure emerge from his dining room and start up the staircase. It seemed to me that he would have every right to shoot me first and investigate me afterwards. It was while I hesitated there, near the sideboard, that I was first conscious of a cold air blowing around me. So distinct was it that my first thought was that some stealthy movement had opened the door to the passage behind me. Almost immediately on that, there was a tremendous crash, as though some heavy object had struck the dining room table, and following that, the door to the hall burst open, slamming back against the wall outside. This was followed by complete silence. So shaken were my nerves by all this that my next consecutive thinking found me once more in the gun room, ready to beat a retreat. 
and here I managed somehow to pull myself together and to return to my original errand in the house. Convinced that the slamming of the door would have roused Mr. Bethel, if indeed anything were to rouse him again, and by this time, shaken as I was, I was prepared for the worst, the main staircase was not feasible. I made my way, therefore, into the passage again to the servant's staircase and crept up it, one stair at a time, with the revolver clutched in my hand. I have no idea how long all this took. Possibly ten minutes from the time I entered the house, perhaps even more. I was subconsciously aware, I know, that it was too soon to look for Halliday's return, and in a way I was playing for time. At the top of the kitchen staircase was a door, opening onto the main hall, and this I cautiously opened. Save for the ticking of the tall clock on the staircase landing, the house was entirely silent. The silence and the closed door gave me back my ebbing courage, and I advanced a step or two along the hall. Here I was close to Gordon's room, and I felt for and tried the knob carefully. It was locked, and listening outside I could hear no movement from within. The relief I gathered from this was enormous, and although my position was still unpleasant enough, the fear of tragedy began to leave me. There remained, I figured, merely to ascertain that Mr. Bethel's door was closed and locked, and I could beat a retreat which I felt was by no means ignominious. I made my way, therefore, to his door and tried it. It was fastened also, and I heard him move within, the heavy creak of his bedspring, no doubt as he lay uneasily awake, waiting for the boy's return. I hesitated there, wondering whether to call him and tell him he was not alone and helpless, or to retire, satisfied that he was awake and prepared for any trouble that might come. But there were no further sounds from beyond the door, and I turned away and prepared to retrace my steps. It was then that I became conscious of a light somewhere below. Not a light, rather, but where before had been absolute darkness, there was now something else, a faint illumination which outlined the staircase well, and which was reddish in color. Note. It is worthy of consideration that when, later on, Halliday and I made our experiment with the red lamp, lighting it in the den and opening the door into the corridor, we secured much the same effect, save that in the experiment the resulting glow seemed stronger than the one recorded here. And I will swear that a figure was standing at the foot of the stairs, apparently facing toward me, and looking up. Or, rather, not a figure, but a face, the light was so faint that no portions of the body were visible. I will swear that it moved, not toward the dining room and a possible exit by the window of the gun room, as Halliday suggests, but still upturned, toward the library, and that within a foot or two of that door it disappeared. I will swear that the red glow persisted for a moment or so after that disappeared, and then slowly faded away. And I will also swear that I had no more intention of firing my revolver at that figure than I had of leaping down the staircase after it. Mr. Greeno would have done no less in my situation, and might very possibly have done considerably more. The first knowledge that I had pulled the trigger came with the sound of the shot itself. I was certainly not aiming at the figure. If Mr. Greeno examines the mark left by the bullet, he will find, as Halliday and I did, that my bullet went almost directly down and is embedded in the baseboard of the hall, near the den door. As a matter of fact, the whole sequence of events, ending with the shot, had stunned me. I heard Mr. Bethel in his room calling out, and someone outside shouting from the terrace. Almost immediately there was a crash of breaking glass in the library as Halliday smashed a window with a porch chair, and the next moment was in the house and fumbling for the light switch inside the library door. When he ran into the hall I told him what had happened, and he immediately set about his search. As Mr. Bethel was still demanding, beyond his door, to know what was wrong, I went back to reassure him, but it required some time to induce him to unlock the door. Thus it was Halliday who made the first investigation downstairs. He is confident no one escaped from the library, unless in that brief time while he was feeling for a light but it is to be remembered that the floor near the window is covered with broken glass. No escape by that method could have been noiseless. At the same time, any theory of departure by the windows of the den is impossible, since we found all these windows closed and locked on the inside. I am convinced that the intruder was not the secretary. As a matter of fact, he drove in a half hour later, saw the lights in the house and hammered for admission, and surveyed our group in the hall with an amazement which, under any other circumstances, would be humorous. 
and I am also convinced that it was not the doctor. Mr. Bethel showing signs of collapse, Halliday telephoned to Hayward. He replied at once. Had he been at the house that night, he could not have made it. I have no explanation whatever of the fact that Halliday and Hayward later on found the gunroom window closed and locked, save that the intruder may have entered by it while I was working my way into the dining room, and that the cold air, the crash at the table, and the bursting open of the door in the hall, which so alarmed me, may have marked his passage through the room. At the same time, no statement of the situation that night should fail to point out, loath as I am to believe in the supernatural, that for many years this house has had a reputation for similar phenomena. The bursting open of the door and the cold wind are merely repetitions of many similar unexplained occurrences. So also is the reddish color of the light I saw. The disappearance of the figure and the blank darkness which followed that disappearance are difficult to account for under any natural law at present known. I am not a spiritist, but it is to be remembered that only a second or so elapsed between Mr. Halliday's entrance by the broken window and his turning on of the lights. Neither he nor I heard in that interval any movement, yet an escape over the broken glass of the window would certainly have made some sound. As I have said, the windows in the den were found to be closed and locked on the inside. End of memorandum for Mr. Greeno. August 15th. Up today, but not allowed out of my room. Jock spends most of his time with me, whether from devotion or interest in the appetizing trays Jane sends up, I am slightly uncertain. Edith suspects the latter, and has taken to calling him Old Dog Tray. She reproaches me bitterly for my faculty of getting myself into difficult situations, and quoted for me today those immortal words of Lewis Carroll, with a small amendment of her own. You are old, Father William, his young niece said, and your hair has become very white, and yet you incessantly stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In preparation for the detective's visit, she has laid out my best silk pajamas, and her reason for doing so sounds like her. No man is really at his best without his trousers, she observed, but there's a sort of moral support about silk pajamas. It puts you out of the housebreaking class, anyhow. Not at all, I retorted. Only our best housebreakers can afford them these days. But it shows her strength and my weakness that I am now wearing them. Greeno has come and gone. What he thinks of things now I cannot say, but at least I am, as I have had occasion more than once to record here, still at liberty. The fact that the revolver I used was Halliday's, and Halliday's supporting statement, no doubt are in my favor. At the same time, it is clear that, although he listened carefully to my preliminary statement relative to our suspicions against Gordon, he was not greatly impressed by it. How do you and Mr. Halliday reconcile that theory with the sheep going? He asked when I had finished. He wasn't here then, was he? No, that has puzzled us, of course. Then again, he went on, eyeing me, he himself was knocked down and tied. I don't suppose you accuse him of that, too? I've told you, I said impatiently, that we haven't a case. It's a theory. That's all. Take, for instance, that rope. Oh, come now, Mr. Porter. I've slept out of my room at night over a woodshed. So have you, probably. Coming down to the night of the 11th, he listened to my written statement without comment, save that he smiled somewhat over what he called my ingenious conclusion. He also passed lightly over my picture of what followed, of Halliday's entrance, of Bethel brought down and sitting huddled in a chair in the library, somewhat dazed and showing signs of collapse, and of Gordon's return and our sudden realization of my predicament. Just what predicament? I was in the house because I knew Gordon had a rope and a knife in his room. If we let him up there, and he did away with them, it left me in pretty poor shape. So you kept him downstairs? By force, he says? I wouldn't call it force, but we were three to his one, of course. In other words, you telephoned to the doctor, but you didn't telephone to Star until Gordon came in and found you there? If you want to put it that way, yes. You broke into the house and found somebody there who had no business there, but you didn't think of calling on the police? What I felt we needed was not a policeman, but a medium. He condescended to smile at that, but he was back to the matter again like a needle to the pole. Gordon says that Hayward and Halliday went off somewhere after telephoning Star and that you held the gun on him. Is that correct? I still had the revolver. I didn't point it at him, if that's what you mean. As for Halliday and Hayward, they were going through the house, that's all. And they found the gunroom window closed and locked. 
So they say I wasn't present. How do you account for that if that's the way you entered? I don't account for it. I suppose you have keys to the house? I have. But you entered by this window? Great heavens, man, I said impatiently. I don't carry those keys with me. I wasn't trying to get into the house. I went in because the window was open. And if you think I liked doing it, I'm here to tell you I didn't. You can't account for the window being locked later? I cannot. Why should I have locked it if that's what you were trying to intimate? I had to get out again. He abandoned that for the time. Point is this, Mr. Porter, he said. You and Halliday have laid considerable emphasis on that knife. It was because Gordon had it that you were in the house, I understand. Had it and might use it, I amended. It was, in your opinion, either on him or in the room upstairs. But as it turned out, it was neither on him nor in his room. He denies ever owning such a knife. Halliday saw it. He's lying. It's your belief, then, that on this murderous errand of his, which was to end up at the house, he disposed of the very weapon which you had expected him to use? I haven't said that, but I think it probable. Why? Why should he? He could have had no idea the house was to be entered or his room searched. He came back, smoking a cigarette, I understand, to find you and Halliday in the hall, a window broken and a bullet embedded in the floor. That doesn't sound like a man who's been out hiding the evidences of his crimes. He asked me abruptly after that how long I had known Halliday and his relationship to the family. Then he attacked Halliday's statement that he thought he had seen the lights of a car by Robinson's Point and had started for that. Mr. Halliday, he said, says that he believed that this car was Mr. Bethel's and started toward it, giving you his revolver and leaving you alone, that he found no car there and turned back. To support this statement, he says that a boat lying in the creek there had excited his suspicions because the oarlocks were wrapped. Muffled oarlocks are not uncommon things. The possession of the boat was suspicious. Perhaps, he said, but that was a matter for me to determine, not Mr. Halliday. As to the strips he maintains were wrapped around the oarlocks, I am not saying they were not there, but I am saying they were gone when I went over the next morning to examine the boat. What he had hoped to gain by that, I do not know. He shifted rapidly, perhaps in the hope of somehow trapping me. Our reasons for hoping to connect Gordon with the crimes, since one of them had taken place before his arrival, when I had first missed my fountain pen, exactly where I was standing when the revolver was fired, when I had taken off the safety catch, where I was when Halliday broke the window, and from that, without a pause, back to the gunroom window and had me repeat my story about finding it open and entering by it. Yet you thought, he said, that this boy whom you consider a degenerate and a murderer was inside. In a few minutes you expected Halliday back, but you did not wait for him. Is that right? It is. Then you thought in all probability that the boy had this knife with him? I didn't think about it at all, I said. If I had, I'm not sure I would have gone in. But later on the boy returns, and you won't let him upstairs because the knife is there? Is that right? Looking back over the interview, he seemed to be anxious to break down my story, rather than to be following any idea of his own. Halliday stated it fairly well when I reported the examination to him. He's got nothing, he said. Nothing but you, and that's where a system breaks down. It might work if you were guilty, but it isn't worth the tinker's damn since you're not. One rather curious thing he added, however, in view of Greeno's questions about the knife. Note, I was not present when Starr, followed by Gordon, Halliday, and Dr. Hayward, went upstairs to examine Gordon's room. During the interval of waiting for the constable, I had been conscious of an approaching nervous chill, the beginning of the illness which laid me up for the following three days. Gordon was as surprised as I was, he says, when Starr didn't find the knife. It was too good to be true. He could hardly believe it. August 16th. Downstairs today for the first time. As I had expected, Mr. Bethel intends to give up the house. He has so notified Thomas and Annie Cochran, and has sent me a note asking me to see him tonight. The note was left by Gordon, and as I happened to be in the hall, it was I who received it. He stiffened when he saw me, it being our first encounter since the other night. Mr. Bethel sent this, he said briefly, and started to go. On the veranda, however, he stopped and turned around. Pretty dirty work the other night, he said, watching me. I am not forgetting it. He waited, apparently expecting a reply. On receiving none, he stood studying me for a moment, a most uncomfortable moment for me. Then he smiled, his curious, sneering smile. I am not afraid, you know, he said. I can take care of myself. I am not worrying. He thrust his hands into his pockets and turned, not toward the other house, but toward the road. 
Near the gates he began to whistle, and thus theatrically assuring me that he was at his ease, started toward Oakville. I have learned today that he is leaving Mr. Bethel, and has gone to the city to look for another position. The boy puzzles me. Here I am, more or less a specialist in boys. For more years than I care to remember, I have known them, collectively and individually, but here is a new type. He is weak, compared to that prognathous portion of Halliday's face, for instance, he has no lower jaw. He completely lacks personality. He could, according to somebody's description of a similar type, be stood up against a whitewashed wall and erased with a good rubber. He is, one would say, almost too weak to be vicious. But nature apparently gives to these otherwise defenseless creatures of hers a sort of low cunning with which to protect themselves. He has that cunning. He is not in love with Edith, I think, although that vain young woman probably believes that he is. He is interested in her, as the only young and feminine creature within his present milieu, but for the same reason he hates Halliday, quite apart from the other night, as representing what he is not and would like to be. At the same time, he hates the world, because he feels himself incapable of coping with it. But just how far does he carry this secret longing of his to escape his own inferiority? To the length of crime? Granted the desire so to escape it, has he the ability? Can he make his possible dream of becoming a master criminal come true? I think not. Other things go on much as before. Greeno, after three days of no further discoveries, has gone again. The situation at the main house the other night has, thank God, not reached the press. The boat, with the mufflings gone from the oarlocks, still lies in the creek beyond Robinson's Point, and the sole proof of such muffling, if the point is even brought up again, lies in the boathouse along with the broken lens, the bit of Gordon's cipher, and the small screw cap of an ether can. Our lovers move about their ordinary duties with an eye out, as one may say, each for the other. Vague as the future is, they have each other, and only this morning I saw Edith with a basket of mending, from which looked forth what greatly resembled a masculine undergarment in need of buttons. Shades of twenty years ago, when each sex politely assumed the other went, so to speak, undergarmentless. They cannot turn the clock on, but there are times when there was a sort of despair in Halliday's face, and sometimes I see Edith sitting alone, her hands folded, looking three or four years ahead with a sort of tragic patience. So much, she seems to think, may happen in three or four years. She asked him the other day, out of a clear sky, if he had been gone over by a doctor recently. And the reward, on which she has so blithely counted, seems as far away as ever. As far away as her dreams of earning a fortune with her pen. She has had another rejection or two, and the heart has gone out of her. But she has had her moment. Mail still continues to come in, which reminds me that she received a curious letter yesterday. Because it may be construed to have a bearing on our situation, I record it here, but as a matter of fact, one must make certain allowances. Edith's articles used my name in full, and a small amount of investigation by the professional mediumistic underground would supply some of the remainder. The Jane, for example, was quite easily accounted for. But the remainder leaves me considerably puzzled. The boat, for instance, and that strange condition of Mr. Blank, at the end, a heart which is normal apparently failing him, so that he would have fallen had he not been caught. For all the world as though, but I must pull myself together. The letter from Salem was not authentic. Why should I believe this? Evanston, Illinois, August 12, 1922. Dear Madam, I have read with great interest your account of the strange occurrence at the lighthouse at Robinson's Point, and would like to tell you of something which occurred here that same night, and allowing for the difference in time at about the same hour. I am not a spiritualist, but following a small dinner here, it was suggested that we try table levitation, and against my husband's protests, this was arranged for. My husband, I may say, is not psychic in any way, and was greatly bored with the proceeding. We were not surprised, therefore, when, after sitting in darkness for ten minutes or so, he fell asleep and began to breathe heavily. I tried to rouse him, but was unable to, when the opinion was given that he was in a trance state. As none of us were familiar with that condition, and as he began to groan heavily, I was greatly alarmed. There was a doctor in the party, however, not his saying that his pulse was all right. We sat quiet and waited. He then said, Jane, Jane, in an agonized voice, 
and as my name is not Jane, there was some amusement, especially when he added, She is asleep. I cannot rouse her. Almost immediately after that, however, he said, Robinson's Point, and something about a boat there. We think now that the illusion may have been to the lighthouse you mention. After that he was quiet for a time, and I begged to be allowed to waken him, but just as we had turned on the lights again, he got up, with his eyes still closed, and, leaning over the table, seemed to be staring at the gentleman across from him, a Mr. Lewis, a very nice man, with whom my husband plays golf a great deal. I have not changed my attitude, he said in a really terrible voice. I repudiate you and all your works. I am not afraid of you. The thing is monstrous, and society should be warned against you. I have forgotten to say that he kept his right hand closed, as though he had something in it. He made a gesture as though he threw this something away, and then looked at Mr. Lewis again and said, I have warned you. I shall tell the police. He seemed to be in a state of great excitement, and hardly able to breathe. He fell back into the chair, and our doctor friend reached over and felt his pulse. He says now that, although his heart's perfectly sound, it had almost stopped. Indeed, he would have fallen had the doctor not caught him. In a short time, he came around and seemed to think he had been asleep. He felt, however, very wretched the next day. This may not interest you, but the mention of Robinson's point in your article, and the similarity in time, has struck me as a strange coincidence. I am signing this in full as an evidence of good faith, but I must ask you not to use it for publication. Note, I have since secured the writer's consent to the use of this letter, on condition that I withhold the signature. Quote, an element which works beyond our guess, soul the unsounded sea, close quote, says Browning. The poet's idea only, perhaps, but wasn't it Montaigne who said that all our philosophy is about sophisticated poetry? What a joyous time little Pettingill would have had with all this, trotting about a notebook in hand, adding up a glimpse here, a look there, until he had a complete panoramic view of all eternity. But the real question is, what would Cameron say? Not for him the amorous Hadley in the churchyard, a spot, by the way, if our spiritists are right, not quite so exclusive as Hadley seems to have considered it, nor a teacuttle moving about. His the coldly scientific method, the medium in a box, tied hand and foot, scales of weighing, cameras, notebooks, witnesses. Not for him Pettingill's wide view into eternity, but a narrow slit, guarded by little bells on strings, through which the poor ghost must creep if he comes at all. I wonder what would happen if I could induce him to come here. End of section 12